Welcome back to the seventh installment of the roughly 12-part Conspiracy Skeptic podcast. I'm your Conspiracy Skeptic, Carl Mamer. In this installment, we're going to deal with the notion that all of science is one massive conspiracy against people with radical ideas. That science goes out of its way to silence people who hold a view that the Earth is only 6,000 years old. Or modern humans have been walking the Earth for hundreds of millions of years, not hundreds of thousands, or humans have super-psychic abilities. Most of my skeptical listeners have probably heard of the movie Expelled. If you haven't, Expelled is a Michael Moore-like documentary by the creationist Intelligent Design Faction. They're trying to claim there's an organized conspiracy in the halls of science and academia to keep intelligent design and creationism out of the major university research departments. Having failed to introduce creation science in the 1980s and intelligent design at the start of the 21st century, the new strategy by the creationists is to pursue the old teach the controversy idea. Now, there are certainly controversies in evolution, Gradualism versus punctuated equilibrium springs to mind. However, there is no controversy in science about evolution, that is to say all living things have a common ancestor, and represent millions of years of change and adaptation. Even Francis Collins, the head of the Human Genome Project and a born-again Christian, has no problems believing in evolution just from the genetic evidence alone. Now, science isn't cricket. In the public mind, people assume scientists are dispassionate logicians. And they can be, of course. But you don't devote a life to studying, say, zebrafish, unless you're, you know, really, really, really passionate about zebrafish. I like to disabuse people of the idea scientists are dispassionate by asking them, what do you think Einstein did with his Nobel Prize money? Most people simply don't know, or would venture guesses that he used it to fund research, or donated it to Jewish World War II refugees, or something. Truth is, Einstein cut a deal with his wife. When he won the Nobel Prize, the money would go right to her, and then she would grant him a divorce so Einstein could take up with his mistress. Yeah, Einstein was a horn dog. Anyway, science can be messy. People have egos. People will tell you your ideas are dumb. A great example of when the clause came out in science is seen in the history of quantum mechanics. The quantum mechanics and the wave mechanics proponents would show up at each other's lectures and conferences and shout each other down. Really, think Mac versus PC or Shatner versus Picard debates that play out endlessly in cyberspace, and you've got an appreciation of the kind of passions involved sometimes in science. On, uh, on, on my website, uh, www.yrad.com forward slash CS, I'm going to put a couple quotes up there, I think, by uh, some of the quantum mechanics and wave mechanics people. And you can see that it's pretty, it was pretty nasty. So, scientists need a thick skin. If your peers tell you your ideas are dumb, or not even wrong, you don't just run around screaming your Galileo and your critics are short-sighted incompetence more concerned with maintaining their grants and their cherished paradigms. What you do is you go back to the lab and come up with better data to convince your critics. Now, one of the most conservative sciences is archaeology and paleontology. It's not an exact science, and there's some educated guesswork and consensus building going on. 
Creationists love to haul out Piltdown Man and Nebraska Man as examples of evolution getting it wrong. First, by definition, all science gets it wrong, since science is a never-ending process of revising our knowledge. Second, what creationists don't mention is these errors were spotted and corrected not by creationists, but by evolutionists. Now, if there was some vast science conspiracy, why would the vast science conspiracy ever let the Piltdown Man fraud see the light of the day? I mean, Piltdown Man was just, it was the, the perfect missing link. Anyway, archaeologists and paleontologists are quite conservative in their conclusions, possibly not to repeat the aforementioned errors. A great example of this is currently playing out regarding that much ballyhooed discovery of hobbits in Indonesia. One camp believes they've discovered a new hominid species. Another camp believes the Indonesian hobbits are homo sapiens, whose small stature are a result of poor diet or disease. Kind of like modern pygmies. Interestingly, on the hyper-down-they're-just-malnourished-human side is an Indonesian paleontologist. Now, if science was some conspiracy predicated on keeping and attracting grants, what a feather in the cap for Indonesian science it would be to have a new hominid species discovered in Indonesia. And yet, here's a leading Indonesian scientist arguing the ain't-no-thang position. Here's an interesting conundrum. The creationists beat up on paleontologists for supposedly making two grandiose claims, like, shit, a bird with both reptile and bird characteristics is an example of a transitional species. The creationists would like us to believe Archaeopteryx was just a bird, and the jury is still out on its status as a transition between bird and dinosaur. On the other side, there is a camp that beats up on paleontology for being too conservative. This is the ancient origins of man camp. They're less vocal than the creationists, probably because they're lefty New Ager types without the right-wing fundy money. These are the ones who believe in Atlantis, hollow earth, ancient astronauts, the Nubians had fixed-wing aircraft, all that crap. A lot of it is kind of inspired by Hinduism. Unlike young earth creationists who believe humans are no older than 6,000 years, the Hindus believe modern humans have been around for billions of years, not a couple hundred thousand years as the best evidence points to. Hindu mythology is full of stuff right out of Star Wars. Gods zipping around in TIE fighters, monkey armies laying waste to Sri Lanka, nuclear missiles, direct energy weapons. Probably the biggest proponents in the West of this ancient origins of man stuff are the Hare Krishnas. You know those guys who used to hit up people in airports for cash? I guess they stopped doing that a while ago, as, surprisingly, people trying to find their luggage and rental car, they didn't like suddenly having three guys in saffron robes dancing in front of them, begging for change. Hell, I, I can't stand traveling on Halloween, when suddenly everyone I have to deal with, from the ticket agent to the car rental guy, is dressed in some weird costume. I now need brain power to figure out, like, is that the Alamo rent-a-car desk, or is that the real Alamo with Davy Crockett? I don't know. Anyway, the Hare Krishnas are also rather vocal opponents of evolution, because evolution, too, conflicts with their religious teachings, the idea that humans and advanced civilizations have been on Earth for far, far longer than a paltry 100,000 years. Leading the charge has been Hare Krishna devotee Michael Cremo, uh, co-author of a 1996 book called Forbidden Archaeology. 
Forbidden Archaeology inspired an NBC documentary called The Mysterious Origins of Man, which was hosted by Charlton Heston. Cremo's rather weighty 800-page tome documents vast amounts of so-called evidence that modern humans and an advanced civilization predates the accepted out-of-Africa theory of human origins and the migration of primitive hunter-gatherers to the American continent about 13,000 years ago. Cremo charges this evidence has been ignored and suppressed by traditional archaeologists and paleontologists simply because it doesn't fit their cherished inelastic paradigm. Much of Cremo's evidence is not primary research, but simply anecdotal reports from the 19th century of, say, modern hammers or modern human skeletons found in ancient coal seams. These reports of out-of-order artifacts and fossils are not only credulously accepted, but then offered as evidence the traditional theory of human origins is wrong. I mean, it just takes one to invalidate the whole theory, right? Anyway, when you examine Cremo's documentation, you discover he relies a lot on popular archaeological magazines of the day, the 19th century's version of Omni magazine. Uh, maybe I'm dating myself as a fossil with a reference to Omni. I don't know. Anyway, these journals Cremo cites also have stories of mermaids and sea monsters. Not quite nature, you know? Now, it strikes the skeptic as odd that with all our modern tools, we're not turning up more evidence of human civilizations millions of years old, as Cremo and the Krishnas would have us believe. I mean, we can zoom into the high Arctic, dig and find Tiktaalik, that fish-land-animal transitional fossil. Why aren't we finding TIE fighter bases and ancient nuclear silos in India? Well, according to Cremo in Forbidden Archaeology, we are. It's just being suppressed by the great science conspiracy. For example, we're supposedly finding stone tools in America much older than the 13,000-year time frame. One pseudo-archaeologist claims to have found a 50,000-year-old quartz axe in Brazil. And that sounds pretty cool in print, like, wow, an axe, you know, something you get off the shelf at Ace Hardware, that's 50,000 years old. However, what you're not told is the axe is just a sharp stone. You know, stones chip and break through natural forces, and sometimes leave sharp edges. The so-called axe, and most of these other 50,000-year-old tools, are really just stones with naturally occurring sharp edges. As one paleontologist comments, and I'll put a link to his, his full paper on the, on the website, quote, Why are stone flakes made by small-brained early homonyms in Ethiopia 2.5 million years ago immediately recognizable as artifacts, while supposed greater than 15,000-year-old, quote, tools from the Americas are indistinguishable from naturally fractured stone, unquote? It's an excellent question. What's actually quite amusing is when Cremo uses the same so-called evidence to establish the vast antiquity of man as the creationists who use it to establish a young earth. For example, both young earth creationists and old earth Cremo cite the Meister prints as evidence for their origins belief. Of course, creationists cite the Meister prints as evidence of a young earth, and Cremo cites it as evidence of ancient modern humans. What are the Meister prints? Yeah, sorry, I'm getting a little ahead. Uh, the Meister prints were found in 1968 and are basically a pair of rock chips, called spalls, that resemble fossilized prints of a sandal-wearing human. One of the supposed sandal prints appears to have crushed a trilobite fossil underneath. 
like humans and trilobites, according to you know the science conspiracy, actually existed millions and million years apart. They were not contemporaneous. Now, what Cremo and creationists leave out is these so-called prints were found in a field of other rock chips. It just so happens these two, out of many hundreds of chips, happen to look like human sandals. Arguing against these two rock chips being actual fossilized sandal prints is the fact there is no striding pattern. In other words, when you find prints, you just don't find two. You find several in a row. The conditions that preserve the print in one location were probably similar a step away. Also, there's a crack in each chip that the pseudoscientists and creationists interpret as a heel edge. But this heel edge actually extends beyond the print itself. Clearly, it's just a crack running through the rock chip. Anyway, I noticed in my research, a lot of creationist sites trying to sound semi-scientific actually caution creationists against claiming these as human prints. But that doesn't seem to have stopped Cremo, who happily cites these rock chips as prints to this day. What's disturbing is Cremo, who holds a PhD in something or another, and fancies himself as a legit scholar, never seems to cite the objections to the Meister prints, and never provides scientific evidence why, out of a field of rock chips, these two are more probably fossilized human prints. Oddly, in Forbidden Archaeology, Cremo suggests an experiment that would settle the matter. And yet, in 22 years, Cremo has never once conducted this experiment to answer his critics. This is fundamentally bad scholarship, when you know there's extant 22-year-old published criticism and you don't even mention it in your current publication. So, it's a little disingenuous Cremo should be preaching about bad scholarship of mainstream science when he himself offers clarion evidence of his own willingness to ignore legitimate criticism. Now, Cremo's poster child for the vast science conspiracy and its ability to suppress evidence and destroy careers is uh, Virginia Steen McIntyre. The vast conspiracy version of Steen McIntyre's career goes like this. Uh, at I'm going to start butchering a lot of names. Uh, Steen McIntyre was a researcher who excavated a site in Huayat Loco, Mexico. I think that's how you pronounce it. She found evidence of human habitation and radiometrically dated the site to some 250,000 years ago. Like I noted before, the best evidence points to humans in the Americas about 13 to 15,000 years ago. And modern humans weren't even supposed to have existed 250,000 years ago. Because this finding contradicts the ruling paradigm, she was drummed out of her chosen profession. Her scientific papers were rejected, and she was subject to all kinds of ridicule by her peers. She's now a dog walker or something. Anyway, the other version goes like this. Steen McIntyre was actually a grad student, and the site was really being excavated by another researcher, named Cynthia Irwin Williams. I, I, don't know, I don't know why academics have two last names. Steen McIntyre was the lead author on the dating paper, but Irwin Williams did support her findings. Now, radiometric dating is a lot like a thermometer. A thermometer can give you a very accurate reading of the room's temperature, but if you stick it in the wrong place, say near a window in direct sunlight, you'll get an inaccurate reading. Radiometric dating is similar, the site being excavated was near a lake that has flooded the area for thousands of years, contaminating the strata. It's really a little early to rewrite the history books based on a single paper whose findings might be better explained by sampling error. 
So the charge is Steen McIntyre was drummed out of science because she threatened the paradigm. Oh wait, Erwin Williams stood by Steen McIntyre's findings, and yet Erwin Williams continued to be a productive scientist. Why didn't the conspiracy destroy her career as well? And Steen McIntyre did publish another paper in a peer-reviewed journal, despite and following the controversy. Was Steen McIntyre silenced, or was she just simply not cut out to be a career scientist? Remember, we have to come back to this requirement that good scientists also need thick skin. If a scientist has data that appears to contradict the vast bulk of existing data, scientists are going to be necessarily skeptical. That's their job. Instead of shouting conspiracy, Steen McIntyre really needed to answer her critics about her sampling methods and come up with samples in answer to the criticism. It all kind of reminds me of one of those people you encounter in life. You know, the type that always seems to be getting laid off from their job. And it's always because the manager is a fucking asshole or other co-workers had it in for them since day one. It's, it's never them. They never stop to think, hey, I've been fired from five jobs in the last four years, whereas most people I know keep one job for several years. Have I just defied the odds and gotten asshole bosses in cereal? Or <clears throat> maybe I'm the problem. I think sometimes we have to point the finger at ourselves. Alright, now let's turn our attention to the real bug up the ass of the creationist types behind the Expelled movie. Whereas Steen McIntyre is the poster child for the ancient antiquity of man yogic flyer crowd, Astronomer, and I'm going to butcher some more names, Guillermo Gonzalez, is the current cause celeb of the Discovery Institute, the main creation at, um, intelligent design PR tank. Yeah, yeah, they're in just about intelligent design. Gonzalez is a dyed-in-the-wool idea. It's an intelligent designer. He thinks some things are just plain impossible to happen naturally, and therefore the best explanation is God did it. He's a senior fellow of the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture and a fellow with the International Society for Complexity, Information, and Design, whatever the hell that is. Gonzalez's biggest contribution to ID is arguing the privileged planet idea. Out of 100 billion known galaxies, each with 100 billion stars, just ain't no way Earth could have developed conditions favorable for life. Therefore, God did it. Gonzalez was working as an astronomy professor at Iowa State University and applied for tenure. His tenure was rejected. The Discovery Institute kicked up a fuss that Gonzalez was denied tenure because of his belief in intelligent design. To wit, he was expelled for championing unpopular ideas. Now, the DI has to walk a very fine line here. You see, intelligent design is science. Well, according to them. It's not religion despite that the Dover trial found it was, quite literally, creation science with creation science find replaced with intelligent design. Anyway, the DI is not arguing Gonzalez is being persecuted for his religious beliefs. Ho ho, no no. He's just a researcher who holds a minority scientific position and is being persecuted for it. Well, Okay, but this line of argument leaves many in the academic field scratching their heads. Isn't it right and proper for a university, before granting a job for life to a professor, to examine a professor's course of research and pass judgment on whether or not they think he's pursuing a fruitful line of inquiry? It was real hard for a while for people ready to devote their life to quantum gravity to get a position. 
If a professor of oncology wanted to devote his academic career to researching beet juice as a cancer cure, or a professor of history wanted to devote his life to exposing the Holocaust as a lie, well, don't universities have a right to say, hey, do it on your own dime, not using future university funds, because in our estimation, this isn't a fruitful line of inquiry. This is entirely basic to all scientific research. There are limited research funds. Scientists apply for grants. Other scientists review their work and determine if there's grounds for throwing money at them, instead of the next guy who might have something more likely to pay off. Remember my own father once was a part of a grant committee for two-time Nobel Prize winner Linus Pauling, who by that time was arm-deep into his vitamin C woo. I remember my dad being very, very impressed with Pauling. What scientist would not be in awe of a two-time Nobel Prize winner? Anyway, guess what? My dad and the grant committee turned Pauling down because they didn't think he had all his ducks in a row. Did Pauling scream conspiracy? No. Pauling understood the ground rules. So coming back to Gonzalez, where was the problem? Sure, cutting-edge research has to start someplace, but it's the right of any university to decide if it wants to be the ones on the cutting edge. It's the marketplace of ideas. Gonzalez is free to sell his research goals to anyone willing to pay. That not many judge his ideas as a fruitful line of inquiry, well, tough titties. The DI, to buttress their arguments Gonzalez was denied tenure, because he wanted to waste money cataloging gaps in astronomy and then label them, God did it, released some highly edited snippets from faculty emails. Now, the DI is rather famous for quote mining, namely, you know, a snippet here and a snippet there and making it seem like critics all agree Battlefield Earth is the greatest science fiction movie ever, a nonstop thrill ride sure to please all ages. You know the trick. Anyway, D.I. quote mined the emails to make it appear like professors were afraid granting Gonzalez tenure would imply ISU was legitimizing ID, PDQ. However, physics and astronomy professor, uh, here's another name I'm going to butcher, Georg Schmalian, uh, one of the emailers quoted by the uh, D.I., wrote an op-ed for the local paper setting the record straight. The emails were not smearing Gonzalez and fearing tenure would grant ID legitimacy, but were actually emails cautioning that a denial of Gonzalez tenure would become fodder for the DI, which proved pretty darn prescient. It's like, how do you hire your nephew for a job for which he's truly the most qualified candidate and yet avoid charges of nepotism? You might start to exchange email with colleagues cautioning this move will be interpreted as nepotism and wondering the best course of action to minimize such criticism. Naturally, someone could selectively quote such emails and make it appear like you were really seeking to put your nephew on the payroll by hook or by crook. Despite criticism that the DI was quote mining the emails, a criticism easily deflected if the DI simply released the full text of the emails, the DI never did. Odd that. Remember, the DI are the first people to scream, let's see all the data. Now, how does one get tenure? Well, primarily, you publish in peer-reviewed journals and you attract grant money. Why Gonzalez was denied tenure is pretty dry fact. While Gonzalez's peers attracted each over one million in grant money, Gonzalez attracted a paltry 20,000 bucks. 
In seven years at ISU, Gonzalez had no significant publications and was only able to attract one single grad student to work under him. Universities pay the bills, not just with grant money, but by having profs who attract the best and brightest to study under them. I mentioned peer review a bit ago, and this is another one of those points the creationists, ancient antiquity of man types, and pretty much the whole subset of pseudoscientists, like to scream as stacked against them. In short, when we're talking about peer review, we mean a scientific journal where, before a scientific paper can get published, the paper is vetted by several subject matter experts, i.e. peers. The peer reviewers check to make sure the paper's authors are drawing proper conclusions from their findings. While good scientists try to methodologically eliminate other explanations for their findings, peer reviewers try to find out if the results might be due to other factors the paper authors have missed. Now again, here's the key. If peer reviewers are coming back saying, well, we think it's possible that your results are because you didn't control for contamination of the sample during step three, a good scientist doesn't scream, well, prove I'm wrong, or screams he's being persecuted like Galileo. A good scientist goes back to the drawing boards, tightens up the controls, even if he thinks they're tight enough, and gets the job done. Now, there are a lot of complaints about the peer review system, not just from pseudoscientists. Lots of bad scientists slips by peer review. Peer review is no guarantee. One has to understand peer review is not about putting the stamp of science approval on any claim. It's not a courtroom. It's not a judge. It's not saying, okay, we know this is correct for all time. It's just saying, look, peers think this scientist's ideas are supported by the evidence, so you might want to devote part of your time to it. Now, lots of people are doing science. Lots of people are making claims. How do you winnow it down? One of the ways this has traditionally been done is publishing in a scientific journal. These are published at great expense, and many like to retain their good name and subscribers by publishing good science. No one is stopping you from creating your own journal. Many do spring up for this very reason. There are loads of parapsychology journals out there. My university subscribed to them and shelved them right alongside the psychology journals. The creationists claim they're banned from publishing in Nature, etc. because of a conspiracy. Well, they recently started their own journal. If they start doing primary research, then maybe people will take notice. And trust me, there are plenty of evolutionists who will read the AIG journal, if only for shits and giggles. If they really started generating compelling research, someone would take notice. Alas, Pretty much the bulk of so-called creation science is devoid of primary research, consisting of commentary pieces and randomly grabbing evolutionary science articles and claiming their evidence against evolution. Evolutionists challenge ideas in young earth creationists to do primary research and present it. I would like to think biologists have a certain amount of credibility that if an idea did publish, they would take a look. And some actually have. Dr. Zach, host of the Evolution 101 podcast, did a search of real, genuine primary research by creationists slash ideas. Dr. Zach came up nearly empty. Think about this a moment. Creation science has been kicking around for a hundred years. And in a hundred years, the most primary research they can do is like two articles. Anyway, I'll, I'll post a link to his findings on the site. And so great, there's a published article. 
Even after an article is published, scientists don't automatically go 100% truth. Guess what? They try to repeat it. They do a new experiment based on the old. They try to extend the research. If their experiment doesn't work because the original experiment was fake, they'll rather quickly figure that out. It's only when a lot of scientists use a previous scientist's ideas and get real-world results that it becomes a real official part of science. The proof is in the pudding. Cremo's trillion-year-old universe idea and creation science hasn't led to a whit of real-world results. Now, another method of getting your research before the eyes of scientists is attending conferences. This is a place where a lot of controversial and speculative research is published and then debated. I'll refer you again to the history of quantum mechanics. One doesn't need a whole committee on your side to present. You just need one person to vouch. And trust me, a lot of biologists would love to be able to debate a Jonathan Wells paper at a real scientific conference. But you know what? They never go there. Sorry, they argue a lot about a science mafia, but they don't have the balls to go into the lion's den. I'm mixing up a whole bunch of metaphors. Anyway. It's very easy to claim you can't get science to look at your data if you're simply not presenting any for critical examination. Here's a wonderful example. At the McLean versus Arkansas trial, which tackled the legality of teaching creation science in the classroom alongside evolution, the creationists made the argument that mainstream science wasn't publishing their scientific papers and there was a conspiracy against them. Did they have any evidence? Well, this is what the judge ruled. Let me read his ruling. The scientific community consists of individuals and groups, nationally and internationally, who work independently in such varied fields as biology, paleontology, geology, and astronomy. Their work is published and subject to review and testing by their peers. The journals for publication are both numerous and varied. There is, however, not one recognized scientific journal which has published an article espousing the creation science theory described in Section 4a. Some of the state's witnesses suggested that the scientific community was, quote, closed-minded on the subject of creationism, and that explained the lack of acceptance of the creation science arguments. Yet no witness produced a scientific article for which publication has been refused. Let me repeat that again. Yet no witness produced a scientific article for which publication has been refused. Let's go back to the judge's quote. Perhaps some members of the scientific community are resistant to new ideas. It is, however, inconceivable that such a loose-knit group of independent thinkers in all the varied fields of science could or would so effectively censor new scientific thought. End quote. Hmm. You would think they'd have all kinds of papers lined up ready to show a judge. But no. Odd that. I should point out here, this is what I'd accept to abandon my belief, there is no vast science conspiracy. If in a venue of fact, logic, and evidence, like a trial, creationists could present compelling evidence that their primary research is being rejected, and a judge so ruled, I would be forced to agree, there is a science conspiracy. They had that chance. They presented no evidence. What's that mean? Now that Expelled is nearly in theaters, we're starting to see the kind of open academic inquiry and expression creationists are really gunning for. Evolutionary biologist P.Z. Myers appeared in Expelled. He says he was misled, told by the producers they were going to do a film called Crossroads, 
about the intersection of science and religion, not about the vast science conspiracy. Anyway, PZ tried to attend a screening at a local theater. He went to the website, filled out the form to get his free passes, used his real name, and then proceeded to the theater with his family and one Richard Dawkins in tow. PZ, get this, was barred from attending the movie, despite the fact he was not only in the movie, but thanked at the end of the movie by the producers for his participation. So PZ was expelled from expelled. Huh. Gee. Anyway, Richard Dawkins got in, and at the end, during the Q&A with the producer, Dawkins asked why PZ was expelled. The producer claimed PZ was a gatecrasher. Hmm. No, PZ followed the prescribed procedure for getting tickets and did not misrepresent himself. So the producer, who is, remember, championing an honest discourse on origins, lied to his audience. Golly. This has not been an isolated incident. In another instance, a movie reviewer was invited to a screening and asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement. He didn't sign it. He published his movie review. It was negative. Ben Stein accused a movie reviewer of posing as a Christian minister to gain access to the film. Another lie. There you go, folks. All right. So let's say one of those expensive journals doesn't want to waste space on your scientific paper. And you don't have the funds to start your own journal. What's a bust-up Einstein to do? Well, the Internet. There are a lot of message boards and open blogs frequented by real scientists. If you're not a wild-eyed madman screaming about the science mafia, and you really have some interesting speculative ideas, people will listen and offer you their opinions. One blog I read a lot about is uh, uh, genomicron.blogspot.com. Uh, I'll post a link. A guy who reads that blog, I think he was an engineer, had an idea about genes called the fractogene or something. Not really sure what he was talking about. The guy who runs the blog is an expert in the evolution of the genome. He wasn't fully impressed by the fractogene guy's argument, but he was willing to give him a shot and offered to referee a paper for him. Heck, maybe he was the next Swiss government clerk in the tradition of Einstein. Anyway, the blog author, T.R. Gregory, quickly withdrew his offer when the fracto guy went running to the DI people screaming about a science conspiracy. Guess what? If you start screaming in the face of the, of the people you, you want to read your science, that they're evil bastards, they won't want to read your stuff. At the end of the day, there's limited time and money. Time and money should go to people with the best logic, not the people who piss their pants. Coming back around, we have Cremo as another great example of this. Cremo published his 800-page forbidden archaeology book and then mailed it out to his peers in archaeology. Cremo was also thoughtful enough to include a book by his guru, the Bhagwan Cash, or whoever. The Bhagwan's book detailed the vast science conspiracy that is keeping the ancient history of man from science. Guess what? If you call your peers assholes to their face, they just may well call you an asshole back to you. Finally, what if you can't get anyone to listen? Well, there is the Randy challenge. Although Randy will be discontinuing it in two years, the challenge is still available to all comers. For those who don't know about the Randy challenge, James Randy, a magician, offers a cool million bucks to anyone who can demonstrate a paranormal claim under controlled conditions. Some woo-meisters have recently taken to criticizing the prize by claiming it's not real science. 
Real science, they claim, uses something called a p-value of 0.05 when crunching stats. Randy uses a considerably more strict p-value. What's a p-value? In essence, a p-value of 0.05 means that whatever effect is measured has a 5% or 1 in 20 chance of being a result of just blind luck. Randy, on the other hand, uses a much stricter p-value. Critics wonder if a 1 in 20 chance is good enough for science. Why isn't it good enough for Randy? Randy defends the stricter p-value by pointing out he runs a lot of challenges. He's not in the business of handing out a million bucks every 20 challenges. Also, Randy makes no claims the challenge is scientific. He's a magician making a challenge. What part of any of that sounds like science? Yes, good scientific and conjuring protocols are used, but Randy makes no claims beyond he just wants you to clearly demonstrate your ability beyond a shadow of a doubt. Hey, wouldn't us nasty skeptics claim you were just the lucky 20th challenger and you didn't really display an actual ability? You don't want that, right? Also, critics are mistaken in their belief all of science uses a p-value of 0.05. Physicists and computer scientists aren't really satisfied if the results have a 5% chance of being random noise. P-values between 1 in 20 and 1 in 1,000 are common. Further, the Randy challenge is a cut to the front of the science line. You don't get jumped up to the front of a nightclub line for being your average hottie. You get jumped to the front of the line for being a really standout beauty. Pass the Randy challenge, and you will immediately get mind share from a load of top scientists. A few Nobel Prize winners are in Randy's inner circle. If you demonstrate an ability beyond question, you're going to get some serious scientific interest. Now, oddly, a lot of the top parapsychologists are happy to criticize the challenge, but none have taken it. The other side of the coin is if you lose the Randy challenge, you've really put your nickel down and lost it. Any hope you might have had of convincing those in real science sitting on the fence would melt away. So it's no surprise the woo crowd generally prefers to generate reasons not to take the test instead of simply taking the test. Creationist Kent Hoven offered his own Randy-like challenge. If you can prove evolution is true, you win 250000 from Hovind. Now, few people in evolution thought the challenge was legit, but instead of carping about how unfair the test was, some top evolutionary researchers like Massimo Pigliucci did apply. Naturally, their applications were rejected. All right, so that wraps it up for episode seven of The Conspiracy Skeptic. Um, another podcast. I don't do it anymore, but another podcast I used to do, if for some bizarre reason you just are interested in hearing my voice, uh, you can check out my uh, Soul Survivors podcast. It was a podcast about teaching English and living in Seoul. Uh, you can go to www.gokorea.info, www.gokorea.info. Again, I'll put a link to the site. And uh, you can check out, gosh, she did about 59 podcasts, one a week, over a year podcasts we did. All right. Uh, well, bye for now.